Women's Health Melbourne is a boutique specialist fertility and women's health practice, caring for women at all life stages. We're proud to provide world-class holistic medical care, including IVF and a range of other fertility treatments. We provide our patients with every opportunity to achieve their goals. Our two Melbourne locations are in Fitzroy and our new state-of-the-art Caulfield practice. Reach us at womenshealthmelbourne.com.au and you can follow both Women's Health Melbourne and Dr Radia Lou on the socials. Diana Elsner is a family lawyer who trained in Melbourne and graduated from Monash University in 2004. She is passionate about family law and has worked exclusively in this area since 2005. Diana's work involves all areas of family law, including relationships, property and children's and parental matters. Diana has a special interest in issues related to surrogacy and egg and sperm donation. This is a relatively new area with legislation introduced in Victoria in 2008 with the Assisted Reproductive Treatment Act. So, Diana, we've known each other for a long time. Yes. Can you tell our listeners what made you do law? I, I remember Diana from way back and she was always really organised and very fastidious in her documentation. She was the girl who had the essay ready weeks before it was due, unlike... <laughs> myself, who was more of a <laughs> night before kind of gal. <laughs> so tell me, tell me, um, tell me what attracted you to the law? I've always wanted to be a lawyer. I've always enjoyed the law. I enjoy helping people. I enjoy advising people about the law and, and the implications around their, their choices and what is the best choice to make. And the law's always changing and in particular family law, it's a very emotional area. It's not like corporate law or commercial law. It's, it's a very emotional area and, and, and I enjoy that. I really enjoy helping people and, and getting a good result. And it's just, it's so interesting with all the new legislation, with uh, fertility, and and this this act, the Assisted Reproductive Treatment Act, things are always changing, and the sperm donors and and IVF and surrogacy. It's 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 just it's so interesting, and uh, yes, and I I just I really enjoy helping people. I think that's what it stems from. Yeah, I think we have that in common. You and I, we both like super competitive. <laughs> <laughs> in our own ways and want to be really the top of our field. We do. We always were like that. And also... You were always the medical and yeah. I was always the was humanity. More, that's right. I was yes. always a bit more science-y yes. in, my, in my bent, but we, we definitely had that in common. And also wanting to be constantly interested in what we're doing. Like mm. we're both really interested in areas that are evolving. And that I we think found something we're both really passionate about. I know you're very passionate about what you do. Yeah, and absolutely. I feel the same about what I do. Yeah, mm. which Ma is wonderful. Maybe tell mm. us a little bit about what family law covers. In my mind, I think of it as divorce. But what 
more does it do? Well, there is divorce, yes. but divorce is the very end of it. The divorce is the is the final stage. So before divorce comes a separation. When you separate, and this can be for a matrimonial matter or a de facto matter. De facto matters are treated very similar now to matrimonial matters. You can actually register now if you're in a de facto relationship, you can register your relationship under the Act. So it's very similar. So there's a separation, there's a property settlement. So that would ordinarily happen before you get divorced. And then if if there are children, there are also children's matters to consider. So there's time spent and who's to have the primary care of the child and issues around holidays and short-term, long-term holidays and religious holidays. This is all sorts of things to consider. And, and then there's other, I mean, I have had a lot of abduction cases overseas and, and interstate. Yes, yes. Cases. Yeah, and then there are ugly sides to family law. There's, there's sexual abuse cases and then that, that's an ugly side of it. And, uh, and yes, and there's also actually binding financial agreements, which is less litigious. A lot of people like that, but... That that's good for people who who agree can agree, but unfortunately a lot of people can't agree, and they have to go down the track of going to court and and yeah, that's where it, it can get a bit more complicated because society's changed. And I guess if you just flip back one generation, you know, people used to get married, and then if they weren't happy, you know, that generation were already in the stage where they could separate and get divorced. But I think. Nowadays, we kind of put off commitment. A lot of people do. And that is another area where our fields kind of intersect because one problem that I see, and I, I treat a lot of couples in the circumstance of advanced parental age where people are trying to have babies a bit later in life. And um, Well, I know my mum had my sister when she was 21. She was a grandmother at 43. Yeah, and so, so. she was like practically <laughs> the age that, that we are now. Yes. Well, actually, she definitely was the age that we are now yes. when she yes. was an empty nester, like yes. from your sister's point of view. Yes. Yeah, so it's, so it's, it's so strange. much change. And so I guess people aren't together for as long before they have children. And so, you know, they have to make the ultimate commitment, which is parenting together yes. quite quickly if they get together later in life. Yes, there are more choices now, I think, available to people, and which is good, which is good, but with choices things can get more complicated. So, so do people have binding financial agreements and those kind of things before getting married or do they have them instead of getting married? You can have... A binding financial agreement before you get married, when you're married, during a marriage, or after you're divorced. So the Family Law Act covers every stage. Or, or if you're in a de facto relationship, again, before you start living together, when you're living together, or when you separate. And so in terms of having children, having agreements to do with sperm donation, would you say that they're kind of a similar ilk to those binding agreements or are they completely a different thing? So binding financial agreements are legally binding. So people would have them instead of a court order. But a sperm donor agreement or a surrogacy agreement, they're they're not legally binding documents. They're they're written agreements. They're still evidence. It's still imperative to have something in writing if you're not going to have a court order to have a written agreement. 
but they're not legally binding like a binding financial agreement is. So what about egg donor agreements? Would you call them exactly the same? Because I would find that in my practice, I see quite a bit of, you know, kind of bring your own egg donor um, compared to sperm donor. A lot of the sperm donation in my practice comes from clinic recruited donors. I would say that would be probably 90% with probably 10% recipient recruited donors or bring your own donor. Um, But egg donor is a bit different because in Australia, it's much harder to come by an egg donor. We can't remunerate women for egg donation and it's a big deal to donate eggs physically as opposed to sperm donation uh, because we all know how sperm donation happens, but egg donation, you have to go through the effective IVF cycle to collect the eggs. So it's not something that people just think, oh, today I'll be an egg donor, Mm. whereas sperm donation you know, it can be something that people just say, oh, that would be a nice thing I can do. I can help somebody. Maybe I don't want to have a family myself. Maybe I've had trouble having a family mm. and want to help someone else. Uh, and physically it's not. Taxing. Yeah, well, the, the physical uh, kind of acquisition of sperm doesn't hurt and it doesn't take long and it's it's somewhat easier than eggs. Mm. But like when I've helped people with an egg donor, sometimes it's a sibling, so it's a very close relationship. Mm. Sometimes it's a friend. Mm. Occasionally I had a patient this year whose egg donor was a hairdresser. Okay. So, you know, sometimes it's somebody they've spoken to about. And yes. Hairdressers are amazing. You, they they you must t- You speak. tend to share a lot with your you hairdresser, don't you? You share a lot with your hairdresser. <laughs> you do. They, they're, I guess it's like part psychologist, part friend. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, do you think that that personal connection of egg donation, would that be another place where an agreement would be useful? Definitely. Yes. It's, it's very important with with sperm donation, egg donation, surrogacy, to have written agreements drawn up. It's very important to get that legal advice and the counselling. You want to avoid any problems down the track and you need that document in writing at the start. It's about future-proofing. <clears throat> Correct. Protecting mm. yourself. It's an investment for the future. And the child. Protecting the and child. the child, the life of the child, the most precious commodity. Mm. Yeah, so from the medical side of things... I can see why some people want to DIY sperm donation because coming through a clinic can be expensive comparatively and um, there are really good reasons why I think it's probably the best way. But, (laughs) you know, there are things like the fact that there is that counselling and it's a well-trodden path with, you know, very experienced counsellors and there's a real legal framework that's set out to make things very clear and there's also the other advantages of things like you know robust screening for genetic concerns and infectious diseases that they have a good medical and also the fact that we quarantine sperm so there's not that ongoing risk of transmission of newly acquired infectious diseases especially if the donor is sexually active um, with other people and you know it's one of these things that in nature the chance of getting pregnant per month is at best 20 percent so Um, And that's quite optimistic in some circumstances for someone who's 40, it's more like 5%. So, you know, it can take more than one go to get pregnant with a sperm donor and you really need this conscientious involvement of these parties over months and months and months in order for success to happen for a lot of people. Whereas when you involve a clinic, we store sperm, we've quarantined it, we've checked everyone for HIV, 
We've checked everyone for every, every other infectious disease under the sun. And then um, from, from that point of view, the sperm's frozen, so you can access it without, you know, involving a donor, knock at the door, I'm ovulating kind of thing. But from the patient perspective, it's much cheaper if they have a willing and able donor on tap. And really the scary thing is that none of those requirements that we consider absolutely mandatory like counselling and legal advice uh, have to happen. So from your perspective, if you had a couple who had conceived in a DIY method, what are the risks? There are many risks. There's a health risk. With the facility, the sperm are being tested, whereas if you have, say, a one-night stand or if a couple wants to use a a person they know, you don't know what, what health problems they have. So that's... I would say that's the main risk. Like it's very well-meaning that people's friends want to help. Like say there's like a male gay couple and someone's sister is willing to hold the baby for them and then they want to do it DIY. What what risks are there then? Who legally, the parents of the child, who has the rights to the child? When I say it's not a a good idea, I mean a one-night stand isn't a good idea to fall pregnant. That's what I'm saying. But absolutely, if there's a friend there who's who's willing to assist the couple, then as long as the intentions of the parties are are clear and it's all been written down and the parties have received counselling, then that's fine. But it just needs to, it has to be, it's imperative that there is a written agreement drawn up or it can cause all sorts of problems down the track. So even if everyone is well-meaning and yes. it's the sister of someone, it should still have a written agreement. Like Get the- it in writing. Get it in writing. <laughs> so, so, what, so you say those troubles down the track, like what specific troubles down the track? Like what are the, what, what are the legal things that could go wrong? If you don't have an agreement in writing, there's a possibility that that sperm donor, well, from the outset they may say, I don't want any involvement, I don't need to, I don't want to be considered a parent, I don't need to come to birthday parties and and that's all well and good at the start. But things change and perhaps down the track they may want some involvement in the child's life. They may want to start going to birthday parties and, and spending time with the child and that can cause a problem for the parents who thought, hold on a sec, you told me from the beginning you didn't want any involvement. So it's it's important to to have that understanding from the beginning it can, because it can cause all, all sorts of problems. When the child is born, say it's a male couple and someone's sister has carried the baby... With one of the with the other one's sperm, who who is on the birth certificate? So, so that's surrogacy. I, I think okay. surrogacy is a whole other topic in itself. Well, the law says the Family Law Act says that where a child is born to a biological mother and her partner by way of artificial insemination, the the Act provides that they will be deemed the parents of the child and not the person who provided genetic material. Yeah, but I think you're talking about traditional traditional surrogacy. So, in Victoria, in in terms of the laboratory kind of stance on it and IVF unit stance on it, we don't do traditional surrogacy. So, yeah. traditional surrogacy is when someone uses their own egg and someone else's sperm to carry a baby that they don't intend to parent. So that's like what you were saying, someone's sister 
carrying a child, that's traditional surrogacy. It's okay. legal in Queensland, yeah, but not in Victoria. Okay, so that would be a, that would be a very difficult legal situation, I would imagine, because the birth mother would a be the legal custodian of the child because she gave birth to the child, mm. but then also she would be the genetic parent as well. Yes. So they, that gay couple would not have a leg to stand on in terms of her not being a parent in that circumstance. So the definition of a sperm donor is somebody who donates sperm, who doesn't have the intention of parenting the child or being uh, the guardian of the child. Mm-hmm. And the way sperm donor conception happens mostly is that a donor is either approached by a program and asked, you know, kind of in a recruitment drive to donate Mm. sperm or they might have approached a program uh, because they themselves have always thought about it. Alternatively, in the context of a known donor, it's often a recipient woman or a recipient couple who want to conceive and they know they need a donor. So it might be a single woman or a same-sex female couple or it might be a couple with male factor infertility that's a dead end and, and that there's no other alternative, like, for example, after chemotherapy when there's absolutely no sperm for some people or Klinefeld syndrome where we've tried to retrieve sperm and been unsuccessful. There's lots of instances of absolute male factor infertility. And then they approach someone they know to be a donor. So a donor is really someone who gives sperm so that somebody else can have the joy of having a child or a family. Diana, what kind of um, couples come to you for sperm donor agreements? We have single mothers or same-sex couples, often uh, often same-sex couples, come and, and they'd like to, they need my services. And so where could people find you? If, if somebody wanted to come and seek advice, if they're in a same-sex relationship and they want to seek advice, how do they approach a family lawyer? What do they do? They'd want, they'd, they'd come to me, they can make an appointment with my personal assistant and they would come and I would take down their details and I would discuss the law. I'd give them some proper legal advice surrounding parentage and the involvement of the sperm donor. And I would, I would set it out clearly for them. And, and uh, then the sperm donor would need to get their own independent legal advice as well. And I, I would highly recommend that both parties receive counselling too. What's it like being a family lawyer? It's lovely. I, I, I really enjoy it. I'm very passionate about it. I love to help uh, in this in this respect. I like like to help couples and in respect of acting on behalf of one party, I like to help them try and achieve a, a good settlement. Generally in family law, not both parties are, are generally not happy with the end result, but uh, but but I, I do like to I do like to help people and uh, are you it's a good feeling. That, and a little bit of a controversial question, but are you seeing that since, you know, there's been a, a lot of same-sex marriages these days because we can, mm-hmm. uh, is there also same-sex divorce? Yes. With same-sex marriage, there's same-sex divorce. Yes, yes. We have been seeing a lot of same-sex couple separation and, and it's exactly like a heterosexual couple. 
And so what are the issues? Like if you've had children together and you separate, what are the issues that, you know, you deal with most frequently? There's issues with respect to time spent because one party needs to be the primary carer. So there's issues about about time spent and we also have issues there's there's property matters too which can be very complicated. So there was a very interesting case that I heard about. I don't know if you've um, read a lot about it, but there was a case, I think it was in Queensland, where a same-sex couple generated embryos together with a, a sperm donor using one of the women's eggs and they had children uh, from those embryos. They had several children. And then subsequently they broke up and there were embryos remaining in storage and there was a case that was against the woman who had the genetic connection, the woman whose eggs were used to make the, the embryos, uh, from her ex-partner, which was trying to have an injunction on her using those embryos which were made from her eggs and a donor. So I don't know if you're familiar with that case, but um, to, me, to me that was just like wild in that I get it. But wow, that's a new area of the law and I had never heard of a case like it before. There's limited jurisdiction about the use of someone's embryos or their their gametes. So you need to have written consent to use them. It's it's very limited. So I in it's kind of somewhat more obvious in a heterosexual relationship because the sperm comes from the male and the egg comes from the female and they both have a genetic connection to the embryos that are equal. And so if one withdraws consent, so let's just say, you know, I'm married, I've made embryos, I split up with my husband, I've still got other embryos and he says, my ex-husband says, no, you can't use those embryos and the law is that I can't. But what about in a same-sex relationship where there's donor sperm or basically any relationship where there's donor sperm and one woman's eggs, um, would the partner have the same right to withdraw consent for the use of those embryos? Is that like just too hard? Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, so basically these scenarios are coming up for the first time and it's yeah. a bit of a case-by-case case basis and it would go to a court. Is that right? Yes, yes. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yes. It's, 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 it's all fascinating. Interesting. It's yeah. so interesting. It's really fascinating, this area. It's evolving and so many unprecedented things are happening right now. It's an amazing space. Yes. And if, if one person, I had a case where the husband of, of my client, he, he passed away and she wanted to use his sperm. And that was a real, that was a real problem because she didn't have any written consent, but she actually, uh, she got consent from the Supreme court to, to store the sperm, but she didn't have consent to, to use it. So mm. that was that was that was interesting, and she applied to an authority to try and transfer that sperm to to the ACT, and they didn't approve. But then she applied to to VCAT, and that decision was overturned. So she she stored the sperm in Victoria, but then that sperm was. She, she couldn't use it in Victoria. It had to be used in another state. That's really interesting. And it just shows how Australia just doesn't have 
overriding agreement on what we can do with assisted reproductive treatments. Um, we know that it's very we can't. Limited. It's so limited, and um, you know, there's there's situations where, like for example, I don't believe the Northern Territory has any ruling on surrogacy. No, they don't. Yeah, but everywhere else does. Yes. And, um, but I think something's happening. Oh, Something there you go. Something should be happening soon. Oh, there you go. We've got <laughs> some inside info, everyone. Yeah, yes. We've got it here first. Yeah. We talked about if someone with a partner dies and their sperm is used, what if there's an embryo? There's an embryo. Again, yeah. again, there needs, there still needs to be the written consent. If you don't have the written consent, then, then it can't be used. So basically, everyone who's having IVF should have this conversation with their partner. So what happens if tomorrow you get hit by a bus and we've can got embryos, can we use them so and have yes. it in writing? The, the Act, the Assisted Reproductive Treatment Act, says that after a person's death, the treatment procedure must be carried out on the deceased person's partner and the deceased person uh, must have provided written consent for their gametes or an embryo created. And then there's the review panel has to approve the use of the embryo or gametes and the person who is to undergo the treatment procedure must receive counselling. So it's, it's limited and, and, it, and the written consent is, is mandatory. I had a patient in that situation in the reverse. So I saw this couple when uh, the female partner was undergoing cancer treatment and unfortunately she didn't survive her cancer. But uh, many people do survive cancer and one of the things that we sometimes do is offer to freeze eggs or make embryos and freeze embryos. And in this scenario, we'd frozen some eggs for this woman uh, before she undertook chemotherapy. And subsequently, unfortunately, she was unable to survive her cancer. And I had a, an appointment with her partner uh, talking about the possibility of using her eggs in the future and while well, it's not ready to do that at all, just to have a, a chat about it. But um, she had given consent. So from, from that perspective, uh, you know, that's, that's an example in the other direction that the same thing can happen. I thought if you froze your eggs and you died, your eggs were destroyed. Well, the thing is, unless you leave them to a partner, you can leave them to a partner Okay. But they can't be donated to a stranger. And the reason for that is that the thought is that children should have an ability to trace their donor. Like that's why Victorian law around donor conception is quite strict and to some degree I think it has an effect on the number of people that donate eggs and sperm because in Victoria we firstly are it has to be altruistic, so you can't pay someone to donate eggs or to donate sperm. It has to be non-anonymous, so it has to be a situation where the donor goes on the donor register so that when a child is 18, they can find out more about their donor, they can find out identifying information about their donor. It's not non-anonymous at the point of treatment, specifically at you know, the level of IVF units using donors, the recipients or the recipient couple don't have identifying information about their donor upfront, but when their child turns 18, they can seek out that information. And there's the reverse also. So the donor can actually seek out information about the child. And that was quite controversial when it came. Mm, that's relatively new. It is very new. It? Yeah, it is. So, um, I don't know if there have been any cases yet on, on that point where there have been some kind of dispute about 
donors seeking out information about children. I know from discussions around the time that that was uh, brought into play, which was only... Feels 2017. Yeah, very recent, that there were concerns that maybe parents might not have told children that they were donor-conceived, particularly in a past generation, and the fact that this was brought in retrospectively. What about these these men who thought they were giving sperm an- anonymously? Yeah, absolutely. And, and I'm sure that they used to round up university students and one they used to round up medical students in the medicine faculty. They say, "Come on, do your bit. You guys are, you know, clever and um, um, you'd be good donors. So come on." And they used to pay them actually before it was illegal, but not much. I think they paid them like twenty bucks or something. And then, you know, thirty years later, uh, there's a complete change of ethos and. And legal opinion. So, Diana, what are, what is the reason for the law change? What are the what was the drive behind it? People, children would have wanted to know who their their parent is, who who their father is. So it would have been a, a big drive to to find that out. What if you are a donor who thought you were anonymous, or adults over eighteen who are donor conceived and don't want to be contacted? Is this a big problem? Well, I guess there is and there isn't because there's also a no contact preference. So donors can have a no a non-contact preference. So while they're identifying information's on the register, they don't have to necessarily consent to... So it's, volu- it's, it's voluntary. It's voluntary, yeah. Yes. So it's voluntary in the sense that their name's there and it's not voluntary that the person they, couldn't find it out. They but can choose what information yeah, and to provide. They, exactly. And Victorian Assisted Reproductive Treatment Authority or VATA is kind of like the custodian of the donor register. So they're like a middleman. So they kind of manage um, contact. So it's not usually direct, although these days <laughs> there are other avenues. So there's been examples discussed of people who've found out who their donor is by doing genetic testing like 23andMe and um, then they have or Ancestry.com and then they have cousins who pop up and they um, figure out who their donor is through clever detective work. So anonymity is um, is not necessarily something that we can keep going even if we wanted to. What if a sperm donor does not want to be recognised? Well, they can't be a donor, can they? No, no. no. Yeah. They, there's no such thing as anonymous sperm donation yeah. anymore in Australia, not just in Victoria, in Australia. Yeah. Have you had any interesting cases, any anecdotes that you think would be interesting to our listeners recently on this topic? I've had a lot of same-sex couples come in and it's it's been a, an increase since the laws came in for sperm donors. It's very interesting, in particular more with surrogacy, with gestational surrogacy, but it's also with, with, with sperm donor agreements too. I've had an increase of same-sex same couples and, and also with uh, property matters too. So yes. do you think known donor relationships are probably becoming more common, like having a donor who people know and bring to the equation? Yes, yes. And what surprises people when they come and see you? But they can be considered as a parent when they're a sperm donor. It's not just they provide their sperm and, and see you later. They, they can be considered a parent. They can have some involvement with the child in the future of the child. But I, I think they just don't understand the, the avenue 
and and also it's all well and good at the start, but the problems can arise. So there there needs to be that that agreement. There needs to be something in writing. And it's also a good idea. Well, written agreement is it, it's good evidence to have if there is a dispute in the future, but it's also a good idea to get a, a parenting order drawn up too because orders, court orders are watertight, whereas mm-hmm. an agreement isn't. However, an agreement is still better than, than nothing. Yeah. So if you have a sperm donor who goes into it as a donor and let's just say they provide their sperm one way or another, either by giving sperm in a cup for insemination or by having sex, is there a difference in terms of the law as to how the sperm was provided? Is it different if you have sex compared to if you just inject sperm in a cup? No, there's no there's no difference. Once you give the sperm, you give the sperm. You're a sperm donor. Yeah. Yes. And so... The, yes. But there's a problem also when you say get back to before when you say what what cases I've had, I did have a case where a sperm donor considered himself a parent but the prospective parent said he wasn't a parent. So that that was a problem and they didn't have a written agreement. And and it's interesting because the Family Law Act doesn't actually define what a parent is. It doesn't say what a parent is. But there are presumptions of parentage. So you look at different case law, you look at the involvement that person had in the child's life and you look at well, you, you look at all the all those important factors and that child and he 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 was actually considered based on the presumptions of parentage a parent a parent so, yes and so he and he could get those those orders for for time for, spent yes. and and also probably presumably request for child support child support that's something else too. That's something sperm donors should keep in mind. And yes, yeah, that that could also be another problem down the track. So again, what while she's a parent and whether they're a liable parent to pay child support, but that, that there's so many different factors that are involved with that. So if you're a donor and, you know, let's just say I'm a donor and I have good friends who are a lesbian couple, I want to help them out, they want to have children... And I go into it going, oh, yeah, it's off the record. It's not using a clinic. I'm a donor. But then the baby's born and I have unofficial contact with the baby and kind of like little role of donor dad in the family. Can I then completely change my mind and redefine myself as a parent? Absolutely you can, yes. The children's needs change as the child gets older, even if you had a, a written agreement or you had a court order, it doesn't matter because it's not set in stone. Children's needs change as they get older. So you can go to the court, you can you can apply for and you make an application for some for some orders that you want to spend time or more time with the child. And if the if it's a good good case, then the, the court that will order that you, you're allowed to spend more time. And so all on, the evidence is there. And on the other hand, can the couple change their mind. So let's just say uh, it's very harmonious at the beginning, but then, you know, retrospectively, perhaps uh, the maybe the sperm donors, you know, kind of 
well off and maybe the couple go through hard times or if they separate, can they then change their mind and say actually that sperm donor is a parent and require them to pay child support? It's not about what the prospective parents want or even what the sperm donor wants. It will always be what is in the best interest of the child. So if the parents, if there is a change in circumstances and it is in the best needs of the child, say, for those orders to be changed, then then yes, yes, it's, it, that, that is, it always comes back to that. That's the paramount consideration and that's all that the court cares about, what is in the best interest of the child. And so what happens if, and you'll probably say it's the same answer, but <laughs> what happens if unfortunately a couple have a child through sperm donation with a known donor and the couple pass away or are incapacitated or abandon the child for whatever reason the child's alone in the world does the sperm donor then count as a parent like what would the situation be it would depend on many factors if the sperm donor was on the birth certificate possibly those parents may have appointed a guardian in the event of their death so it would depend if they appointed a guardian would the donor be able to challenge a guardianship? So let's just say I'm a couple, I'm one of a couple and I pass away and I nominate a guardian, say, for example, my sibling or a, um, a friend uh, or my parent. Could the donor then challenge that guardianship? It would depend on the facts of the case, but, but yes, they could. If they had some involvement in the child's life, and again, it's what's in the best interest of the child, that child knew them if they had some involvement, then yes, possibly. So all these kind of things, things you'd think about in an agreement? Absolutely. You? The more you put in, the better. You, yeah. you want to avoid it being contested down the track. So would you say I mean, that... Similar to a will, actually, as well. Okay. Any written agreement, you want to avoid it being contested down the track. So would you say that, you know, kind of the counselling, one of the roles of the counselling is to get people to think about all these things and make sure that they... Yes, yes, yes. That's exactly what counselling does. It's more psychological. We're we're not psychologists. We, I would just provide the the legal advice and the legal side, the legal framework behind the agreement. But there's really a reason that there are all those steps in place when using donor donor sperm. Yes, yes, yes. It's it's uh, it's complicated and it can be a very problematic area. Typically, if the prospective parents know the sperm donor that that can be problematic if they use a facility I think it's 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 not as no you're going through all the steps and that person who donated the sperm knows what they were doing in the first place that's right that's right and and they're being checked for for medical problems and and yes it's sort of up to the facility to do all of that whereas with the prospective parents who are just doing it on their own it's it's yeah, it's it's up to them. So whilst it might be a lovely idea that your friend or your sibling is helping you out, actually down the track it could be far more problematic. It can be, but not if you you do prepare a document, a written agreement, you get legal advice, get counselling, then then So it's mostly just so everyone's on the same page, really. Correct. And yes, and and people, and, and sometimes people are on the same page in the beginning, but then down the track things can change. So it's important to have the intentions at conception in writing so it can be used as evidence down the track if there is a dispute. Oh, thank you. 
Yeah, and we're yeah. going to have Diana come back on the podcast in the future for another episode just to talk about surrogacy. We raised a couple of minor points on surrogacy in this episode. We didn't delve into it because it is another topic in itself. Mm -hmm. So we're going to invite Diana back to talk again about surrogacy. If anyone in our listeners is in the situation where they're thinking about using a known donor outside of a clinic setting or even within a clinic setting and wanting to have a firm agreement where can they find you so i'm at www.adrianabrahamsfamilylawyers.com.au great thank you by subscribing to our podcast and giving us a good review it helps others to find us and we really appreciate it our mission is to empower women seeking real honest and accurate fertility advice we appreciate your help you can follow us on social media at Women's Health Melbourne and at Dr. Ray Lou. We'll be back soon with another episode. <laughs>